majority, the 6'7 sophomore from East Meadow, New York. Leadership is learned. A starter on Coach Dean Smith's legendary 1982 Tar Heels National Championship team with Michael Jordan. Jordan comes down with a rebound. Clears it away to Darty. Darty going in against Floyd. For the layup, it's good. Leadership is earned. Head coach at the University of North Carolina and the University of Notre Dame. You notice Matt Doherty. He is up working every second of this ballgame. Leadership is taught. Public speaker, author, and executive coach. And leadership does not require a title. This is the Rebound Podcast with Coach Matt Doherty. Welcome to the Rebound Podcast. I'm Matt Doherty, and I'll be your host. On this podcast, we discuss leadership and overcoming adversity in an open and raw kind of way. I became passionate about leadership in 2003 after I lost my job as the head coach at my alma mater, the University of North Carolina. I went on a leadership journey. Leadership is a skill that needs to be practiced on a continuous basis. Today's guest on the Rebound podcast is Steve Sirio, 35-year-old wheelchair basketball player. As a co-captain of the USA Men's National Wheelchair Basketball Team, he led the American men to their first paraplegic gold medal since 1988 at the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Paralympic Games and defended the gold medal at the 2020 Tokyo Paralympics. He currently plays for the New York Rolling Knicks. He was a 2017 ESPY winner. And more importantly, we're related how about that? Steve, welcome to the show. Coach, I so appreciate you having me on and thank you for uh, all that you do. And I'm really excited to get into the get into the talk. Well, it's kind of weird that after all these years, I've never I don't recall that we've ever met in person. Maybe we did. Um, but your dad and I are first cousins, and I spent many an afternoon in Seaford, in the driveway where your dad grew up shooting hoops on this big, I mean, just remember, it was big, like the backboard must have been like 10, 10 by 10, <laughs> 10 by 10, had a real <laughs> soft spot. You wanted to shoot bank shots all day long because it would just sink right in the, in the goal. But uh, great memories of, of growing up with your dad. And then to see your success and what you've overcome, um, it, it's really cool to finally talk with you. Um, congratulations on all your gold medals. Um, what was that like? Let's just start, you know, kind of in reverse. What was it like being a captain on a gold medal Olympic basketball team yeah absolutely and thank you for, for providing a little bit of context about my dad you know um, when I was kind of up and coming he was kind of already over the hill so I didn't get a chance to see that uh, world star athlete in the driveway I didn't say he was an all-star athlete I, 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 did, I, did, I just said we played in the driveway <laughs> I didn't say who won um, I just said we played in the driveway no I'm kidding I'm kidding no no I, no you're right and I, I I agree I don't believe that we've had the pleasure of meeting yet but I will say that um, when I started my basketball career you uh, between my family was a very prominent figure in telling a lot of stories and the work that you put into to reach your point in your career so while uh, we haven't had the pleasure of meeting you have been a prominent figure uh, along my journey but to answer your question um, you know what is it like to be a leader of a Paralympic gold medal basketball team? I can tell you that, you know, when I go around and do these diversity, equity, and inclusion talks and, and people discuss uh, some of my accomplishments, they always go back to the medal, right? Like holding a gold medal for any athlete is a once in a lifetime experience. And it's kind of the culmination of 
all the work that you've put in. And the unique thing about, you know, being an Olympic or Paralympic athlete is you only have one chance to win that gold medal every four years. So it's not like uh, we don't have these talks about, oh, you know, we'll get them next year or, um, you know, wait till next year and, and, you know, things will be different. It's, it's really like once in a lifetime. But to be a leader of both of those gold medal winning basketball teams, it was the highlight of my professional career. You know, to be a leader of men, to be to be a leader of uh, a team sport where not one person can do it. You know, you really have to get everybody aligned and focus on the same common goal, understanding that you yourself and everyone around you has to sacrifice for the greater good. To be able to call myself a leader of both of those successful teams is just the absolute highlight of my career. I will say that um, leadership is not something that I was born into. It's something that I had to develop. And I really hope that we get into, you know, how to develop into being a leader. But it's not one of those things that I was born with. And I always like to highlight that because so many athletes just think that it's either they have it or they don't. And I'm here to tell you that this is something that you can work on. This is something that you can um, develop into with a lot of hard work. But um, yeah, to be a leader of, of those teams, man, it was the highlight of my athletic career. There's a lot to unpack. And you touched on something that changed my life in 2003. I lost my job as the head coach at North Carolina, my alma mater. Uh, two years prior, I was the national coach of the year. Two years later, I'm asked to resign. They didn't like the direction of the program. They felt I was too hard on my players. They they questioned my leadership. And so I went on a leadership journey, and I think as athletes, um, there's three options. Or in life, you know, you, when dealing with adversity, you could quit, you can identify with it as a you know loser, or you can embrace the challenge. And I think that's the mindset that most good athletes have. And I was in a class at Wharton being taught by Fran Johnston, and it was on emotional intelligence. And in 2003, I never heard of that term. And in that book, I read Primal Leadership, The Art of Emotional Intelligence. There's a line in there. It said, leadership is a learned behavior. And when I read that, it was the best thing I ever read. Because like you just touched on, people would say, oh, he's a born leader. And I was always considered a leader as a player. And then, you know, it's questioned. And then my confidence, even at 40, 42 years old, was shaken. And like, I had doubt. Am I a leader? Can I get better? And then when I read that, leadership is a learned behavior. As you touched on, it can be developed. That was the most exciting thing I've ever read in my life. And so I talk a lot about you're impacted by three things. The people you meet, the books you read, and the trauma in your life. And you faced trauma ever since you, before you could remember, you were 11 months old and you had spinal surgery. Um, Touch on that if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely, Coach. Uh, it's it sounds so simple when you put it in those terms, but you know everyone's journey really does come down to those three elements. So uh, it's it's great to hear it laid out in, in such simple terms. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it really is uh, kind of unpacked in those three ways. Talking about my disability um, to provide a little bit of context, I was born with a benign spinal tumor that went undiagnosed for the first eleven months of my life. And during that time, the tumor became infected and inflamed and crushed my spinal cord, resulting in the incomplete paralysis of my lower extremities. So living with a disability, it's, it's all I know. It's all I remember. 
I know that that must have been an incredibly difficult transition for my loved ones around me. But for me, I tell people that I actually got very lucky because this is the only life that I've ever known. I don't know what it's like to be able to run. I don't know what it's like to be able to walk. And in a way that that makes this life for me a little bit easier because adapting to a world that was not built for me has just been normal. It's just been life. Growing up, my parents, uh, my dad, your first cousin, was they were determined to give me a quote-unquote normal childhood. I went to a normal public school system. I had able-bodied friends, and I played able-bodied sports to the best of my abilities. And basically, we would tailor the rules so that I could so that I could play. It was really about inclusion. I was a big baseball player growing up, and when it was my turn to hit, I'd step up to the plate. I would hit the ball, and one of my friends would run down the first for me, and then I would take his or her place when the play was over. And that's what athletics was to me growing up. It was a way to be with my friends. It it was not a a high-performance lifestyle. It was just, I just want to be included. Mm. And then when I was about 14 years old, the school board uh, told me that I wasn't able to participate anymore for safety and liability reasons for myself and for the other athletes. And to be honest, that was the first time in my life that I ever felt disabled. Here are these people that don't know anything about me, don't know anything about my abilities, basically telling me that I couldn't play with my friends anymore. But I didn't let it hold me back. I decided to do what any kid would do, and I became the manager, right? I just wanted to be included. I became the assistant coach of the football team where I got a chance to call a couple plays. I got a. I was the track assistant coach, where I would keep times for all the athletes, and just I just wanted to be there. I just wanted to be on the bus. I just wanted to go on road trips. I just wanted to be included, and I did that for about a year. And I realized that I was just not born to sit on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. I am an athlete at heart. I needed to find an athletic outlet that allowed me to participate in the way that I felt that I could. And through a physical therapist, uh, I found out that there was a wheelchair basketball team that played and trained 10 minutes away from where I grew up that I never knew about. How about and that? This might show my age, but I'm that this was before the internet. So I didn't, you know, <laughs> like you could just log on to Facebook and uh, just find, you know, your local sports team. But I remember going down to the gym for the first time, sitting in a wheelchair basketball chair for the very first time, pushing up and down the court. And for the first time in my life, I felt free from my disability. Jeez. Here is this sport that I had no relation to, which allowed me to unlock my potential. Sports didn't necessarily become about fitting into a world that was not built for me. Mm -hmm. Here is a sport that allowed me to embrace my disability, embrace my differences, and allowed me to shatter any and all limitations anyone would ever try to place upon me. And I tell people I haven't left the court since in about 19, 20 years. Um, And that was a major checkpoint of my life. Who was the person that uh, steered you to to the uh, wheelchair basketball league? So I discovered wheelchair basketball through a physical therapist that I was using for years. And I basically had no interest in finding adaptive sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but when that uh, traumatic event happened in uh, my, my development in high school, um, I needed to find an outlet. And, you know, my dad is the athlete of the family. And he basically did not let me, he didn't let me not go. Mm-hmm. He, he basically dragged me there. I didn't want to go for the very first time because mm-hmm. 
I don't need to play adaptive sports. I can right. play able body sports. Um, but I remember him taking me down there for the first time and just saying like, Hey, let's just try it. Let's just see what happens. And I was addicted. I was completely hooked from the very first practice. And, uh, if you know anything about my father, he's one of those people that does not let anybody quit. And he would drive me to every practice, every tournament. He's, he's the guy that made it all happen from the very beginning. So, yeah. Oh man. And, 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 you know, I just remember your dad is very positive energy, you know, high energy, positive person. And probably did it in a way that uh, was not demeaning, but was encouraging, but yet persistent. And, uh, you, you know, again, I go back to your life's impacted by three things, the people you meet, the books you read, and the trauma in your life. And you just touched on your dad, obviously, and then that physical therapist who introduced you to wheelchair basketball. Imagine if you weren't introduced to wheelchair basketball, you know? Yeah, it's it's everybody always asks me what you know what I would do if I wasn't playing basketball, and I always reflect on the idea that success is defined by such a thin line, and you have to be ready to take advantage of those opportunities when they're presented to you. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, growing up, without even knowing it, I had the athletic eye of the tiger because I didn't have access to any sport that allowed me to to fulfill my athletic journey, and then when I was presented to me in this completely randomized, um, completely unpredictable way, I seized it. And I realized that all throughout growing up when I was playing able-bodied sports, what it was really doing was it was preparing me to take advantage of that moment. Yep. And I'm just so incredibly grateful that that crazy, unpredictable turn of events happened that way and, and grateful that I was ready to take advantage. So you're 14, the school board says you can't play able-bodied sports. Mm-hmm. How did that make you feel? Uh, and how did you deal with you know that period? How long was that period? Was it a, a, a couple of weeks? Was it a month? Was it a year? Yeah, so uh, that step in my life was about a year long. And I can't really describe it in a different terms, uh, only to say that it was the first time in my life that I felt disabled. Yeah. Here, is, here are these people that don't know anything about me yep. telling me that you know, having a, this such a limiting factor of this life. And if you know anything about me and my family, we don't put limits on things. Mm -hmm. And here are these people, which for, you know, quote unquote, safety and liability reasons saying or or limiting my life in a way that I was not comfortable with. And I didn't have the tools or resources or the mindset to be able to fight back in that moment. And I just wanted to be included. I just wanted to be there. So that's where being an assistant coach of the football team, Mm -hmm. being an assistant coach of the track and field team, just, wanting to be there with my friends, just wanting to motivate from the sidelines. Um, I just wanted to be included. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, uh, like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't born to sit on the sidelines. Yeah. Well, you touched on earlier a hot topic uh, these days, uh, DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, this is what's a beautiful thing about these conversations. Uh, I like to have real conversations. I like to take off masks and get real with people and ask questions that maybe make people uncomfortable. But when I think of DE&I, I think of, I think of race. I, I don't think of disabilities. And that's my short-sightedness. That's my lack of maybe awareness. But you're talking about it in dealing with disabilities. And I'm, I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. you know, blacks and whites and, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Asians and women and males and, and, but so I'd never even thought of DE and I in terms of uh, disabilities. Tell us more about that. 
Yeah. So one of my passions in life as my career on the court is maybe coming to an end in the, in the next few years. I'm going through this transition as to what impact can I have on the sport that has given me everything, but also on my community that has allowed me to become the person that I am today. And one of the ways that I do that is I give DE&I talks uh, in the corporate world here in New York City. And I'm so incredibly passionate about it because the bar for people to clear over helping them understand the positive impacts of disability are is so low. Um, not many people, while, while a lot of people have ha- have gone through struggles or have loved ones that have gone through struggles with their health, not many people can relate fully to living with a disability. And one of the ways that I just try to encourage people to look at things differently is by putting them in a wheelchair. We, we just play basketball, but we put them in a wheelchair basketball chair and say, listen, it's the exact same game. And this is the game that you've played all growing up, but let's just do it sitting down and let's, and let's talk about how your world is going to be impacted and how you have to do things differently. And I always relate that back to the idea of when people look at someone with a disability, the first thing that pops into their head is, identifying the things that they can't do, right? You see me for the very first time, you see me in my wheelchair, and the first thing that pops into someone's head is, wow, that that sucks that he can't walk. And I really am so passionate about changing that mindset into the first thing that you, when you see me, it shouldn't be the medals, it shouldn't be the successes, but it also should not be the things that I can't do. Let's change that mindset and figure out how to change that perspective into seeing someone for what they can do. And what people in the corporate world always discover is that people with disabilities have to do things differently and we problem solve differently, which is a complete benefit in the workforce. If you just want someone who thinks about the same way, who thinks about problems the same way you do, then I would say that that's a limiting factor. You need people with all different backgrounds, all different experiences and all different relationships to our community. And that's one thing that people with disabilities provide because we are faced with challenges each and every day, challenges that most people take for granted, unfortunately. But that doesn't mean that just because we have to do things different, it doesn't mean that we have to be less than our able-bodied counterparts by any means. I want to give that some space and TV. They say, let it breathe. You know, as the audience (laughs) is cheering right now, uh, you just hit a last second shot. Uh, let's say it's going into overtime because I don't want to end the game right now. I want to continue on yeah. here because we've got a lot of great content, but that was powerful. That was very powerful. Yeah. Give me an example. Okay. You give corporate talks on DE and I, and you say people with disabilities can problem solve differently. Give me an example of how you can go into a a law firm, a tech company, a construction company, and help them with their perspective? So one of the, a, a, a big part of my talks in the corporate world is telling stories, right? That, that's yep. the way that you connect with Story people, telling stories about my, about my journey, absolutely. So I'm not going to go into my, the, the entire ramble, but I have this one story that I talk about the place where I evolved in my leadership. And it basically comes down to, um, we were doing this team building exercise with our Team USA that was heading to Rio. And these are athletes that have been my teammates for years, um, some close to a decade. And we were doing this team building exercise, which let's be honest, when you're at a high performance level, we all kind of roll our eyes. Right. At those because team you're team building, building every day in practice. 
Exactly. Um, but we were going through this team building exercise that stuck out. And it was basically, we had to figure out, we were, we were handed a list of paper, a piece of paper with a list of items. And the scenario was we were trapped in a, in a snow capped mountain in a car that had died. And here's a list of items that you have rank the list of items in order of importance, and then craft a story to how you were going to survive and get home. And we go around and, you know, I'm from New York city, right? So it's determined that I would die in like three seconds, <laughs> right? Cause I'm this, I'm a New York city kid. I, I can barely handle central park. So let alone in that scenario, I have no shot. But we get to one of my teammates, and I would describe him as the offensive lineman on our team, like the guy who does the dirty work, the connector, the glue guy, but he gets overshadowed because he's not the scorer. He's not the guy who does a lot of flash stuff. And he goes through this intricate, elaborate story about his survival. And to make a long story short, he not only, quote unquote, wins the event, but the next practice we have the next day the next training camp we have a week later and heading into Rio, uh, which was about a month away, he is playing the best that I've ever seen him play. He is engaged. He's, he's communicating. He is just being as passionate of a player as I've ever seen him. And when we get to Rio, he's awarded with a starting spot, which he absolutely deserved. And I remember going up to him after that announcement and just being like, dude, I've been your teammate for 10 years. Like what's changed? And he cites he cites that team building exercise and he cites how it was the first time where he was able to be the best. He was able to show this side of him, this survival guide side of him that just doesn't come out in a normal basketball conversation or normal interactions. And he felt empowered. And when I go to these corporate talks, I always encourage groups or teams to figure out ways to make everybody in the room, regardless of their differences, difference in race, difference in gender, difference in disability, to somehow feel empowered. Because once you empower those teammates around you, the entire team is lifted up. And that's a skill as a leader that I still take to this day, but it took me over a decade to figure that out. That's the story that I want people to always take with them. I love the story, and I'm going to use that exercise. I'm an executive coach uh, with Vistage, and I work with corporate CEOs, and and we are always looking for team building exercises. And I too am one that like roll, you know, roll your eye. What's a team building exercise? Let's choose teams and play, you know, to eleven losers run. Mm -hmm. You know, that's Mm -hmm. team building. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but you talked about a skill that you develop leadership. And I say this all the time. Leadership is a skill like shooting a basket, like hitting a golf ball. It is a skill that needs to be practiced. You cannot take a leadership course and get a certificate and announce that I'm a leader. It has to be worked on like golf when, when, or after a game, let's say you have a game. You didn't feel like you shot the ball. Well, you might stick around and go back out to the court after the game's over and work on your form just to get back into a rhythm. And, and leadership is like that because you can figure, you could think you've got it figured out. I just took this course. I went through this seminar. I've got all these new team building exercises. But all of a sudden, someone does something in a, in a meeting and you react too quickly, too harshly, and you offend somebody. And I use the, the analogy of I just birdied number nine. I'm shooting a low score. I make the turn. I'm feeling good. I get to the 10th tee and I hit it out of bounds. 
And that's leadership. You, you have leadership scars. So you're talking about a skill, and you touched on it earlier, that you developed into a leader, that you didn't feel like you were a leader, and you developed into it. Tell, tell me more about that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you touched upon it earlier where I was always the best player growing up. So therefore, I was automatically dictated as the leader, even though I had no idea what that meant. I was just fortunate enough to be very good at a sport very early on, and I worked really hard. But that had no bearing on what it takes to be a leader. Uh, The first thing that I would say uh, that I've always worked on is how to empower those around me. And I I talked about that uh, recently with that story. Because what I realized is as the best player, you don't always have to do everything. You don't have to take the reins 100% of the time. If you empower your teammates, if you empower those around you, then you yourself are lifted up. And that was a skill that I had to learn how to do. The second is communication. I am a brash, arrogant New Yorker, and I give feedback in that same way. And it took, and it took me a long time to figure out, hey, there are some athletes that I can, I can really get on and I can really scream at in a positive way on the court. And then there's others that I have to take to the side, put my arm around and give them feedback in a much different way. When I was up and coming on Team USA, I had one pitch and it was to be that brash New Yorker. And I realized very quickly that that's not what makes a leader. Yes, I am giving the correct feedback that I deemed correct at that moment. But if you don't, if, if an athlete can't take it, what's the point? I, I had to figure out those different forms of communication style. And then the last thing I would say is it's not my job to complete the task as a leader. It's my job to keep the trains on the tracks. So the way that I, I approach it is, you know, uh, throughout Rio and, and throughout Tokyo, those, that five-year period, I, am confident enough to say that I was one of the best players in the world. But teams were designed to focus on me and my performance. So I I didn't necessarily need to go out and score 30 points every game. My job as a leader is to make sure the team is humming. Mm -hmm. Make sure the lineup that is out there on the floor is humming at the best of their abilities. Now that might mean I might need to shoot a little bit more and score a little bit more. But if things aren't going kind of the right way it's my job to just get the train back on the tracks and get the team back to where that to where that occurs that could mean that i don't i go an entire quarter without shooting that could mean that i take one meaningful shot and i make that one meaningful shot just to calm everybody down just to showcase our resilience as a group but it's not my job to complete the task it's my job to get the team in the best position possible for success i love it those three aspects are all things that I had to learn on. And I, I have to admit that it's one of the reasons why I was, you know, quote unquote successful later on in my career in Beijing in 2008, in the Paralympics, we finished fourth in London in 2012. We were fortunate enough to win the bronze. And then in 2016, we were a, finally able to capture that elusive gold medal. And that progression I deem. Um, very closely related to my growth as a leader of the team. Well, that's uh, powerful, insightful, especially for a young man. You, you hit on a lot of things there. Most good players are thrust into the leadership role, but a lot of 
good players don't want to lead. Um, and it's just not in their DNA. Uh, you talked about communication. I, I started laughing. You know, you had one pitch. Yeah, it's a <laughs> fastball high and tight. Um, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm from Long Island. You're from Long Island. It's like, you know, if you're going to survive in a pickup game in the park, you got to be tough. I say we got to wear three masks. You got to wear a tough guy mask, a smart guy mask, and I've got my stuff together mask. And mm-hmm. I'm not as tough as I think I am. I'm not as smart, and I don't always have my stuff together as much as I'd like. So <laughs> I need to take those masks off. But that one pitch, like, how did you figure that out? I, I, I let me, let me, let me add another piece. Um, uh, I wrote wrote a book, and I'll send you a copy as a as a, a gift for uh, being on the podcast. And I talk about the six nos, K N O W S, of leadership, and and I make up a name because as athletes, coaches, we all like acronyms. So I made up a name, uh, Stevitt, uh, some Eastern European player that I recruited, uh, seven footer with grades, and the S stands for self. You've got to know yourself. And that self-awareness, if you don't know yourself, you can't lead other people. And you figured out that you only had one pitch, that you were an arrogant, well, you didn't say arrogant, I said arrogant, New Yorker <laughs> that was going to go after people because that's the way it is. Like, if you don't if you don't act that way in New York, you're going to be like, you're not getting on the subway, you're not getting a cab, you're not getting in front of the grocery line, you're not doing a lot of things, so you have to be fast and aggressive. And then the second thing, instead of it, you got to know your team, and you just touched on it. Some guys can take the, the, the fastball. Some guys, you need to lob one in there. The V is your vision. Where do you want to go as a team? We want to win the gold. You've got to have industry knowledge, the I, and then you've got to know the truth. And, and I think that's something that's really hard for people is mining for the truth. But let's go back to the self-awareness. Mm-hmm. What happened? Again, I, I, I say you're impacted by three things, the people you meet, the books you read, and the trauma in your life. When did you realize, I need to change up my pitches? I need to add a, a change up, a curveball, and, and uh, um, you know, you need to add a few pitches to your repertoire. When did you realize that? What, what Did somebody say something to you, or where's in a kind of epiphany? Yeah, coach, I, you know, I really appreciate how simple you make things. So, um, I, I will devour that book and I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you for that. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I can't really think of one specific moment. The thing that I will touch on is, uh, basketball, you know, I'm a big Bill Simmons fan. So, um, mm-hmm. he wrote the book of basketball and the overall theme in that book is basketball is not about basketball. It's about people. Yep. It's about relationships. And when I saw my friendships off the court start to go in a way that I wasn't happy about, mm-hmm. it was reflected in the feedback and the manner of that feedback that I was giving on the court. You know, I one, one of my uh, skills as an athlete is to be able to think the game. It's, it's one of the reasons why I've been successful. So I do always deem that I am one of the smartest athletes out there. And therefore my feedback was given in a way that it was right or wrong. Right. Not only did I need needed to allow the space for my teammates to allow their perspective, which let's be honest, as an arrogant New Yorker, we don't, we're not, we don't really give the we don't want to hear that. or other perspectives. We're going to miss exactly. the train. We got to, you know, we, we, I don't want to hear you lecture about why, you know, you're supporting a, a, a an idea concept that is totally off base. We're going with mine anyway. So let's just shut up and go. Right. 
Yeah. 100%. But the thing that I will, I will highlight, and this took me a long time to reflect on, is that that feedback manner, that mentality comes from a place of insecurity. And it comes from a place of, listen, the pressure is so high. The stakes are so high. I need to get the information out there so that we win, so that we win in the way that I was thinking of that we would win. Mm-hmm. And that insecurity stems from a lack of success at that level. Mm-hmm. And it took me that transition to say, live in the moment, play every play as if this is your last. Don't think of the consequences and don't think of past performance. Stay in the moment and feel secure enough in the work that you all have put in together that things will work out. I don't need to harp on every single mistake that's made. I don't necessarily need to harp or talk in every single team meeting because I had built up the trust and the foundations with my teammates that allowed people to express themselves in that right way. For me, it took me a long time to figure out how to calm my emotions in the moment Mm -hmm. and put my arm around one of my athletes during a timeout and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? How did you calm your emotions? I mean, you know, how did you do that? Like, like, that's hard, man. I mean, I've been there. Like, you got to take a deep breath, put yourself in timeout. I wear a wristband, Mm -hmm. and I'll I'll send you one. Um, It's it's Mm -hmm. learn and grow on it, and it's it's a reminder to Mm me um, to – there's a good follow on Twitter. He talks about um, a formula, E plus R equals – Oh, his name is Tim Kite, um, and he worked with uh, some football coaches. But E plus R equals O. So E is the event, R is your reaction, and O is the outcome. And the only thing we can mm-hmm. control is the R. And the better yep. our R, the better the outcome. Now, I didn't learn that till like 10 years ago. I wish I learned that when I was 21. Um, but, you know, back then, it was like the louder, more aggressive, you win. And that was rewarded. But then when you get into corporate America or you become a coach or you're playing with high-level players, you discount that player that may be a little quiet. You know, that, that offensive mm-hmm. lineman you talked about, he may have gotten not, not the respect, a little discount because he's quiet and he just kind of goes about his business. But yet he's such an important part of the team. He really Mm -hmm. embraces the culture, is that glue guy, and helps take everyone's game to the next level. That awareness is powerful. So who -hmm. who, did you work with a a coach in finding out these things Mm -hmm. about you? Did you work with a sports psychologist? Where where did you get assistance in in the self-awareness of managing your R, I like to say? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. I do a lot of work on mental health. And it's, it's interesting because early on in my career, it was a, a very much a sports performance form of mental health. It was a lot of visualization. It was a lot of, hey, in the highest pressure of moments, do you have the ability to focus your attention to make this free throw, which is a very, very you know, basic skill movement. But in high pressure situations, our mind plays tricks on us and it causes us to do something that we've done thousands and thousands of times in in a not optimal way. So early on in my career, I really did a lot of visualization exercises, but I've transitioned into more of a stay present, more of a wellness perspective. 
to not get too high, to not get too low. I'm not one of those athletes that listens to music before a game. I don't get pumped up. I also don't get very down when things aren't going well. I like to stay very present and very steady. And that has allowed me to be that leader that can communicate in much different ways. Because early on, when I was not shouting, but I would, I would give feedback in a very aggressive, Oh, come on, Steve, you were, shout- you were shouting. Way. Come on, Steve, you were shouting. I, you were shouting. I, I, I heard it all the way here in North Carolina. You were shouting. You could say that I was shouting. <laughs> However, when I made that transition, I was under the impression that every one of my athletes saw the world or saw that play through my lens, that's right. through my perspective. And that's not the way everybody sees things, right? Like the, the same thing that makes me upset in a game is not the same thing that makes anybody else upset, right? Like it th- could roll off their back in a way that I can't roll off mine and vice versa. They might get upset over some trash talking that I didn't hear. And I, I would always say like, you know, calm down, move on. Right. So the fact that we are giving feedback to everyone through only our lens is just not the right perspective as a leader. Uh, and I saw, I saw my relationships on the court and the trust that my teammates would have in me completely skyrocket when I changed my communication style. And ultimately, it became about us, not about me doing something right or wrong, you doing something right or wrong. That's not the right way to approach the team aspect. Everything that we do is about us. And if they can't hear the feedback based off of the manner that I say it, then what's the point in giving the feedback? I have to change. Like you talked about that R. I'm not going to ask them to change to my level of feedback. I'll change the way that I give my feedback so it is absorbed in the best possible way for my teammates. How old were you when you figured that out? <laughs> Later than I care to admit. Yeah, well, you um, figured it out you by know, 35. It, I, di- I didn't figure that out till like 40, 43, 45, and it's still hard to change because I talk about the, the uh, mercury that's building up in your esophagus and it comes out and you spew mercury because you're intense. Like your biggest strength's your biggest weakness. And your biggest strength is your intensity, your smarts, your toughness, but that's also your biggest weakness. And changing that, like if you were driving a car and it has stick shift, you got to be able to drop it down a third gear, second gear, first gear, and not always, as you touched on earlier, throw the fastball. But that's, that's hard. But you just touched on, you said you changed your communication style. You changed your communication style. Leadership is a learned behavior. That is so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, I I totally, totally agree. I think that a lot of it comes from just being secure. That comes with experience in your field. You touched on um, knowledge in your industry, right? As an athlete, we're kind of constantly in this world. And that perspective that I had to change my leadership style came with a lot of perspective. I don't always have to be the loudest person in the room to be effective. And early on in my career, that was that one pitch that I loved throwing. But as I matured as an athlete, uh, so did my leadership. Yeah. One thing I talk about a lot, and this is, this is, I think, to be a good athlete, to be great at anything, you have to be obsessed with it. And that's not always healthy, Right. Is there a healthy obsession? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. You can justify it, right? But I was obsessed with being a basketball player and playing in the NBA, and then I got cut. And then I, I found myself working on Wall Street, and I thought that was going to be fulfilling work because I was telling people I was going to make a lot of money, and that wasn't me. And I started drinking, 
uh, well, I continued to drink and just drank heavily and, and try to escape the the disappointment in my life of not playing in the NBA. I remember one time I'm running on Broadway, running up the West Side. I lived on 96 and Broadway, and I'm running thinking I'm going to get in shape and try to play in Europe or something like that. Uh, this was in like 1986, a couple years after college. And a bus pulls up, and on the side of the bus is my former teammate, Michael Jordan, spread eagle over the Chicago mm-hmm. skyline, the, the legendary, iconic logo. And that triggered emotions because just, you know, a year prior, two years prior, I was sitting on a bus with him. I was sharing a pizza with him. I was lacing up my shoes next to him. I was talking junk with him. And now there was mm-hmm. a tremendous separation. And then I got back into basketball and I, f- I found my identity as a basketball coach. And 11 years later, by the way, I've, I got sober in 80, 86, 87, got sober. And 11 years later, I'm the head coach at Notre Dame. Then the next year, the national coach of the year at North Carolina. Two years later, I'm forced to resign. My leadership's questioned. And um, trauma. So I think you have three things when you face adversity. You can quit. You can align with it, associate it with it you know, believe what they're saying about you as a, as a failure, or you can embrace the challenge and, and, and learn from it. And that's what I chose to do. And I think that's what athletes do. Um, and, and then I got back to coaching and lost my job again. And over the last couple of years, March has been a tough month for me because that's the NCAA tournament. And I feel like mm-hmm. I should be there and I'm not and that's pride, that's ego, that's insecurity, like you touched on. And just now, I'm starting to feel fulfillment in my executive coaching, my leadership company, my podcasts. I feel like I'm coaching. I feel like I'm giving back. I feel like I'm impacting lives. But the thing that really hits me for a lot of young people, and I've talked to other Olympians that when you are done at 32, 35, or, you know, most people in their Olympic sport don't make a lot of money in the sport. And there's not really a pro league for the speed skater there, you know, the gymnasts, uh, you know, unless you're elite, you're probably not making a lot of money after the Olympics. And yet your whole identity, your every day was wrapped up in being the best gymnast you could be, the best wheelchair basketball player you can be. And all of a sudden, it's over. And at 32, this this speed skater was telling me, I had to put my resume together and get a job. He says, I never had to do that before. I'm interviewing for a job, and across the desk is a guy who's younger than me and makes a lot of money, and I have to kind of kiss his tail to get a job. And the identity, you're wrapped up in your identity as a basketball player, as a coach, as a speed skater, and then it's gone. How are you, and you touched on it earlier, how are you managing that transition? Wow, Coach, that was a pretty uh, crazy journey um, and, and one that uh, is very common in when I talk to you know, highly successful people. And the word that was constantly resonating for me while I was listening to your journey and uh, getting a chance to talk to athletes that have gone through that transition recently or in the past and me currently sort of going through that transition, maybe not retiring full out, but understanding and thinking about what's next is a form of transition. 
But the one word that has constantly resonated throughout that entirety is resiliency. Every single successful person that I've ever encountered, whether that be in the athletic world or in the corporate world, in the tech startups, in whatever they do, it's resiliency. So many people in this world and in their life and in their journey, they shy away from the difficult moments. They're afraid to fail. They're afraid to shoot. And the one commonality that I can share with your audience is that never be afraid of that, of that difficult moment. Because even if you fail in that moment, it provides you with the environment to learn and to grow and be better than you were yesterday. I've only reached this point of an, as an athlete because I failed on Team USA in Beijing in 2008 and London in 2012. Without those moments, everybody loves to talk about the gold medals in Rio and Tokyo. Everybody loves to see and highlight the SB award because that quote unquote reveals success. But I wouldn't be where I am today without those losses in the first two Paralympics. And as an athlete, we have the opportunity to lose in every single game, every single tournament, we're able to learn and grow as athletes. But it's much different to learn and grow and to face those challenges in our personal lives. And one form that you didn't get a chance to touch on, but the way that I look at it is through disability. I get a chance to talk to people that have gone through accidents that have gone through the disability transition later on in life and getting a chance to talk to their loved ones. And I never talk to them in the light of, Hey, everything is going to be okay. Right. I don't say, you know, it's not going to be, it's going to be easy. What I always remind them is this is a moment of your time. And this is an opportunity for you to accept, to adapt and grow and be a better person because of this experience. It's the same form of resiliency in athletic world, in the corporate world, it's the same in your personal life. And what I would always say to those Team USA athletes who don't have a resume at 32, which by the way, to this day, I do not have a resume. So <laughs> I, may have to call, I may have to call you. And I know a guy, I know a guy, Steve. Your advice. Yeah. Um, but, we as athletes have been constantly learning how to become resilient all throughout our entire career. You went through those, that transition as an athlete and was able to use those skills to follow your passion. And while you didn't have an exact goal, you had the tools and the foundation to be vulnerable, to have the ability to be resilient and to take on those challenges. And you said it yourself, you didn't really find what you were looking for until recently. That is one crazy journey, right. but it shows your resiliency. Right. And that's what I always like to highlight to people. Hey, I thought I was interviewing you. Now you're interviewing me. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Nice, nice, nice reverse course there. You touched on my motto of my Darty coaching practice is learn and grow. And mm -hmm. 20 years ago when I lost my job and I was working with an executive coach in Philadelphia, she said to me, you're a lifelong learner. And I never heard that term before and realized that it was a compliment. And I love to learn. That's why I like doing these podcasts, because I'm learning from you. Either you're reinforcing ideas that I thought 
about accept, adapt, and grow. Like I just wrote that down. Accept, adapt, and grow. Or you challenge my thinking and make me maybe think a different way. And and, and I think in a, if we do that in a respectful manner, the world would be a better place. Uh, Steve, talk to me about two things. One, in, in some of the articles I've read, you've talked about the Challenged Athletes Foundation and what that meant to you and your teammates. You know, who founded it? Who leads it? How can people support it? Yes. Thank you for, for highlighting that. The Challenged Athletes Foundation is a nonprofit organization based in San Diego. And um, I've worked with them as an ambassador for close to 20 years now. And what we do is we try to remove the financial hurdles associated with adaptive sports. You know, as a, as a basketball player, as an able-bodied basketball player, what does it take? It takes, you know, a couple hundred dollars a pair of Jordans or, or LeBrons or Kyrie's. You lace them up, you go, to your, you go to your court, and you're off to play. For me, my wheelchair basketball wheelchair costs about $7,000. $7,000. Seven thousand. So, and it's not like insurance covers that. So, we try to remove those financial hurdles for kids with disabilities to follow their passion in the athletic world. That could be in terms of equipment. That could be in terms of providing a running leg for an amputee. That could be supplementing travel costs because it's not like I can go down and play uh, another wheelchair basketball team that's you know in Brooklyn, right? Like wheelchair basketball. There's teams scattered all across the country. So we supplement travel costs. Basically, we remove those financial hurdles for people with disabilities to find their passion through sport. And thank you for, for allowing me that space to highlight the Challenge Athletes Foundation. Yeah, no problem. Hey, you, you obviously are, are, are a very good keynote speaker. I mean, I can tell. And, and uh, if someone wanted to connect with you, where would they go to get you to speak to their company? Yes, sir. Um, Instagram is always the best place to um, to connect. Uh, my my agent's email is is on my Instagram. Um, anybody can can contact me via email. My email is Steve, the letter D as in Dylan, Serio uh, at gmail.com. Um, but I really appreciate your time, Coach. Um, this has been a long time coming, but uh, it was just as impactful as I knew it was going to be. So. Um, thank you for your interest in my journey. I really oh, appreciate man, it. Oh man, I'm just so proud of you. I, I was so proud of you when you were playing in Tokyo. I went on, I don't know if it was Amazon, whatever, and got me a Steve and Serio USA basketball yes. t-shirt. Oh yes, I did. And I yes. sported it proudly Coach. and I go around and say, that's my cousin, you know? So, uh, Coach. yeah, it's really cool. Really cool. So cool to connect. I'm so proud of you. And, um, Please tell um, mom and dad I said hello, and uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you. I absolutely will, and I appreciate your time, Coach. Leadership is a learned behavior. You're a leader, whether you're a parent, a coach, a business owner, or a friend. We all lead in some way, shape, or form. Thanks for listening. I welcome any and all feedback. You can reach me at dartycoaching.com.